possibilities of soul, the possibilities for soul, are endless. They are endless. And that endlessness is also endless in different directions. Soul opens up in different ways, can open up in different ways, in different directions, at different levels. The We discover a lot about all kinds of things, but also about soul, um, through stillness and through silence. Sometimes, for many of us, stillness and silence can become a kind of habit. We've been on a lot of retreats where there's a lot of stillness and a lot of silence. In a place like like this place this week, or a guy house, stillness and silence are the cultural dominance. If someone were to come in this hall and see a bunch of people sitting still and silent in funny postures, uh, they would consider it quite strange. So we discover, we can discover a lot about soul. We will discover a lot about soul through the stillness, through the depth of stillness and silence. And and yet there's also a direction through through movement and through uh, non-science, through sound. So sometimes what happens, and many of you will have experienced this, and I've talked about it before, one is sitting still and silent in meditation, aware of the energy body, <coughs> maybe there's um, an image or something going on, and one can actually um, feel the energy body moving. But to an outside observer, it would look completely still. I'm, I'm, it looks like this. I'm just sitting in silent meditation, but I feel, and I, it, there's an imaginal sense and an energetic bodily sense of the body dancing or moving or turning cartwheels or w- whatever it is. So this is a really, uh, really fertile area of, of meditation to open up that way. Or, again, an image, and there's a roaring coming through the image. No one can hear anything. It's, 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 if you you like, uh, purely in the image, if we say it that way. But because it's imaginal, it's soulful. They go together. So I don't know if some of you have had this kind of experience. Then, of course, we can, we can actually move. And we did a little bit of that uh, in, in one of the sessions. And I've talked about this in the past as well. So, what is it, if I put the question to you, rather than say what it is, um, what is it to practice moving and practice sounding, and can that be soulful? And what might that mean? What might that feel like? We might have a practice of Tai Chi or Qigong or something. There's movement involved. Is that soulful? How can it 
become more insolvent. So there's there's a, a direction here, a possibility. So we have this came up. Uh, Andrea asked and and uh, in individual interviews, we have a culture of stillness and silence. Could it be um, that we open up the sense of practice to include movement? What, and, and then this question, this uh, not so much a koan, but an ongoing investigative, explorative question for you. What does it mean for movement to become soulful, to become more deeply soulful, more fully soulful? What does it mean for sound, for voice, to become more soulful, more deeply soulful? And a lot of it is about cultural dominance. Because I've, I've said this a couple of times on retreats, and you know, it can be strange because if everyone's well, here, it's it's where we sit and, and we're still. And it looks a bit maybe person thinks well, I look a bit weird if I'm if I'm the only one sort of moving. How uh, influence we are by by you know culture around us. So I'd like to uh, open that up again as a possibility. Movement can be very very subtle, really subtle. The the, the hands are moving or, or some some movement and and it's it feel it can feel completely soulful. Or the sounding can be really subtle. And it, what matters is the soul making, not what the movement looks like to another person or how much movement, or how, what, what it is. Do, do, yeah. So we're just opening up a kind of possibility, uh, a level of practice, if you like. Is that, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, it, it, well, we have sitting period, walking period. You could say sitting period, moving period. Okay. It might look absolutely like walking up and down in a delineated um, form. And, and again, there's so much to learn from a, 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 a circumscribed walking path. You walk between two points and it's very contained and very, uh, well, contained in lots of ways. There's a lot to learn that way. Um, but it might be sometimes that you want to explore something different. There's stillness and sitting and then there's movement. And what 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 is that with the energy body, with the with the imaginal, with the with the possibility of soulfulness? Yeah. Some of you have, uh, m- you know, movement practices, exercise practices. But still, I put this question: What does it mean to deepen the soulfulness, to open the soulfulness in relation to yoga, tai chi? If if you're following prescribed forms, it's an open question for you to find out, for us to find out. Okay. Um, okay. So, want to go back to the nodes, uh, the the aspects of the measurement, and pick up where we um, where we left off. I don't know if Catherine's done it already. Are they on the board? Okay. <laughs> so somehow, um, some of you are taking notes, and and that's fine, and and that's actually great. Um, we will try to put the list up of, of these uh, nodes on, on the board, of these aspects, um, at some point today. <laughs> um, again, why, why are we doing all this? And it's a lot, you know, we're, we're actually zipping through, and today I'm going to zip through, like really it's like a, a high-speed bus tour through. It's partly to um, uh, 
highlight, draw your draw your uh, attention to certain features. What's the point? Partly, um, we are interested in discernment, meaning this whole movement of meditation is whatever the practice is a movement into more and more sensitivity, more and more subtlety of awareness, more and more. Uh, refined perceptions, ability to discriminate and discern this and that. All that is in the beauty and the art of the unfolding. So putting all this out is really just to, again, throw some seeds out. It's like, what's, what's that? Can I notice that? Can I discern uh, this and that? Um, making distinctions or recognizing distinctions in the perception. This is all really important in soul making. Um, so it's it's for the for the sake of that kind of refinement and uh, enriching of awareness and attention and, and, and sensitivity. It's also, as I said, uh, when we introduced it, for the sake of clarity. So there's a whole conceptual framework here that um, understanding the different aspects of it will, will will help bring that clarity of understanding. But it is not, at least I don't, I hope it doesn't become a kind of canonized dogma. This is the <coughs> soul-making catechism. I credo at the 28, um, <laughs> you know, it's like, and it gets very rigid like that. It's more just, more like seeds. It's like, oh, what's that? And even the words we use, they're kind of, they're maybe words that we're very familiar with in English, but they kind of have different possibilities when we use them. They're like poetic, uh, poetic seeds. You understand? So can there be this kind of straddling of, of an attitude that's kind of both kind of very precise and interested in refinement of discrimination and discernment and also kind of loose and, and labile, fluid enough and flexible enough to... Yes? Good. Um, okay, third point why are we doing this is because, um, as I mentioned, uh, there's a possibility in, in, in recognizing these notes in the moment, in, in a practice, that something is activated in the whole process. So, um, for example, um, uh, Catherine talked yesterday about one of those, love, lo- loving and being loved. And some images, uh, it's very obvious, <laughs> really, they're, they're love images, they're, it's palpable, it's like, it's the most obvious feature of that image. Other images, and I've described in other talks, etc., where that's not an obvious feature, but it's there. And what can happen is, I, I begin to notice that feature, or that element, that aspect, that node. For instance, um, being loved. It's like, this, this image, whatever it is, it's very stern uh, and and seems a bit forbidding or maybe a bit scary. But as I pay attention more closely, I notice there's this, there's this unusual kind of loving that uh, this, if it's another magical figure, has for me. And that noticing, the very attuning of the attention to that node or that element, ignites that element of feeling loved further. And then, and that ignition of one part of the lattice um, ignites, the ignition spreads, yeah, so the whole thing comes alive. So one way this all works is, is via noticing. 
Um, we just notice, that's why we're throwing out these things. Note, can you notice this? Can you notice? Some of them are a lot easier to notice than others. And that's individual variation. But the noticing ignites or activates something, and the whole thing can become, let's say, more imaginable, fully imaginable. <clears throat> so there's the capacity to notice <clears throat> actually what's already there that we hadn't fully noticed in, in the field of the imaginal. <clears throat> it's like there is, there is this thing that we're calling sensing the soul or imaginal perception, and we're kind of discovering what it is. So I, I oh, there's that. And it's, oh yeah, right. And it was just dimly in, in the awareness. So that, making it more obvious in the moment, ignites something. Okay, that's one possibility. Second possibility, which we touched on, is to be more deliberate with the nodes. So the, I think it was the second node, the energy body. So I can, again, I can notice what's happening in the energy body, or I can also just, um, kind of deliberately emphasize that node and activate it, actually bring, um, let's say, let's say I'm in, uh, in relationship with a tree, or, or with another being, or with a so-called internal image, and I, can I bring my whole energy body into relationship with that tree, with that being, with that image? I, I sense it with my whole body, not just with my eyes, not just with my ears, I sense it with my whole body, or I just start to kind of deliberately activate more of that energy body sense. So I'm kind of turning up the dial, if you like, on the energy body node. Yeah. And that again can activate that and which can, which can open up the whole lattice, ignite the whole lattice. Yeah. So the sixth uh, element uh, is trust. I mentioned trust. Now this is an example of one that could that could work both ways um, in terms of noticing or activating. So sometimes we're um, we're with an image, and maybe to the mind it, it seems a bit like untrustworthy, or a bit pathological, or violent, or um, strangely uh, amoral or immoral, even or whatever it is. And um, and then. Again, we can notice sometimes that, oh, oh, hold on, that there's something in me, so to speak, that trusts this. And so we notice the trust. Um, but trust is a, is an element of the imaginal. It's one of these elements of the imaginal. Sometimes we can be more deliberate with the trust. Um, so what I'd like to say, and I, I presume that we wouldn't be here, no one would be here if you didn't sense that in the imaginal, even in the weird images that one might get, you'd be a little tentative about uh, sharing them with certainly many people. This, this is a strange, there's something to trust here. It sounds weird, it looks weird, it smells weird, it, it, um, but there's a treasure here. We sense there's a treasure here. Now sometimes what you can do is just deliberately, uh, I, I use the phrase, just just a grain of trust. Okay, it seems like a strange image. It seems like a strange experience or sense of the world that I'm having right now. Can I just sprinkle a grain of trust into the mix right there? You understand? Just a little bit of trust can, can be enough to, for the alchemy to start happening. Without that trust, everything just gets... Uh, 
it, it just it it can't kind of enrich and deepen. Yeah. Um, all this is dependent arising. So, in other words, if I don't, if if there's not trust in this so-called subjective pole of the whole field of the imaginal field, then, like I said, everything kind of um, either grinds to a halt or stops or gets limited. Or my lack of trust, my distrust, my suspicion, my fear, colours the image. The image is a dependent arising. The sensing of the world is a dependent arising. Like in a nightmare, if you've ever had this experience, I'm being chased by the monster, and I'm afraid of this monster chasing me. It's getting bigger and bigger as it's chasing me. If you've ever turned around to, to just face the monster and give yourself to the monster... Have you ever, has this ever happened to anyone? What happens? What happens? It transforms. Why? Because the relationship with it has transformed, because the whole thing is a dependent arising. I participate, we participate in the co-creation slash discovery of what we sense, whether we're talking about intrapsychic images or sensing the soul. Yeah? So... If I can just sprinkle that little bit of grain of trust in, then I'm participating in the creation of this image in a way that allows it to open to... Does this make sense? Um, so you can think about sprinkling a grain. Sometimes with, with trust, it's a matter of like, I don't know about this. Um, so let me just create a little a little frame. I can... I'll let myself play with trusting this, experiment with trusting this image or whatever I'm sensing right now for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 5 minutes or whatever. In that way, I'm not saying I have to sign up, you know, to lifelong kind of marriage to this uh, weird <laughs> weird monster <that> I, <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, but I can just create a time frame. Now, at the end of that time frame, I can just step out of that. So that that can be a helpful uh, thing to do as well. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so that in terms of trust, there's there's also trusting a particular sense that we have, a particular image. There's also trusting the whole process that that we're engaged in, all this business, you know, of soul making and the logos. So there's different kinds of trust, but. If you can find a way, if we can find a way in practice of just just allowing or just encouraging a little bit of trust, that helps the dependent origination in the process, just helps things to become more fertile, to open up. Yeah? Okay, Um, let me move through some very, very quickly. Um, Again, just sprinkling seeds. Um, The seventh... Uh, we said the seventh aspect is that uh, um, images, by, by definition, imaginal images um, elicit, open, nourish, support, ignite soul-making. So something is not really an image unless it has that kind of, we recognize the resonances, all the different kinds of resonances that it has in the soul. So the ex- the sense of soulfulness is characteristic as a characteristic aspect of the imaginal 
There's another part of that which I'm just going to mention because I've talked about it so much before in previous um, series of talks and retreats. But um, an image stimulates, opens, supports, grounds, nourishes uh, soul-making. What is soul-making? <coughs> this is why I'm not going to explain so much. Just to say, soul-making, uh, we could break it down to say it involves what we've been calling the eros-psyche-logos dynamic and the way they weave into each other and inseminate each other and open and expand and deepen and enrich and complicate each other. Eros, psyche and logos. I'm not going to go into it right now. We can talk about it if you want another time. But to say that soul-making um, has this... Ex something expands in soul-making. There's a sense with soulfulness of something... Um, Something stretching the different, uh, stretching the psyche, actually, if you like. Um, stretching the sense of things, the idea of things, the ideas of things, the perceptions of things. That stretch can happen very quickly, very suddenly, or just kind of more gradually over time. This is, yeah. Um, uh, but so, if we say soulfulness is, is uh, the arising of soulfulness, the supporting of soulfulness is an aspect of the imaginal. And soulfulness is more than heartfulness. Heartfulness is very important. Heartfulness is a part of soulfulness. Soulfulness is more than heartfulness in lots of ways. Is it okay if I say a bit more? Are you guys okay? Yeah. All right. Okay, I'm going to just flip the order just because I'm moving through quite quickly. So I'm going to jump to um, what was the tenth on our list and then come back and do the eighth and the ninth. Um, the tenth was um, that in in the imaginal, with the imaginal, the, the boundaries are uh, elastic and soft. The, the boundaries are not definite and fixed. The boundaries of self and the boundaries of other. So the boundaries of the image. So the elasticity means that, uh, is related to what I said before about, just now, about the soul-making dynamic being the eurocyclogus dynamic, having a tendency to expand. So here's this image, for instance, or here's myself as image. And, and the sense is of Here's what it, I, 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 I thought it was, it seemed like it was, um, but as it gets caught up in the soul-making dynamic, the sense of what that being is, and what the self is, and even what the world is, expands. The, the idea of, there's Robert, there's Natalie, they're like this, it's like the sense of what's involved in a Robert or a Natalie who they are, what they are, uh, grows, gets more complex, gets richer, wider, deeper. Yeah. Um, so there's, an, we could say, elastic edges. Uh, thing, things can expand and move. This applies both to concepts and to images. Yeah. Soft edges um, means 
just just right now, try two things. First thing is, think of someone, think of someone, uh, actually someone you love. And consider, get a sense of their being, if you can. doesn't have to be, If you get a sense of their being. Now, you might have a really um, sharp visual, for instance, imagination. Every little hair of stubble on their chin, or, or whatever it is. Um, so in that sense, the the image may be uh, very visually, as a form, it may be very uh, not soft-edged, but maybe very sharp-edged. But I'm talking about the beingness, their beingness. So this person that you love... Get a sense of their beingness. Does that beingness of this person, their kind of essence, their, does that have an edge? Does it have a sharp edge? I mean, maybe it has some edge. A sense of, well, Mark is over there and I'm over here. Mark is over there and Eamon's over there. And there's edges there. And that's fine. And another level that doesn't exist, but... That's fine. We're, we're retaining a certain level of those edges. But if I say, I, I feel into Mark or I feel into Amen, that there's no sharp edge to a person's being. Do you understand? You get a sense of that immediately. That's how persons are. When we put sharp edges, a person probably said, whoa, buddy, back off. Um, or we don't like it if people do that to us, or if we do it to ourselves, we, we don't feel well. Okay? An image is the same. Or a sen- if, it, if it's a tree that I'm sensing the soul, or, or a flower that I'm sensing the soul, again, it doesn't have a sharp edge. This, this soft-edgedness is part of the, part of the sense of an image. Do you, do you understand? Okay. So that's the tenth, elastic and soft edges. Um, related to that, and a lot of these aspects are, as I said, they are, they kind of, some of them overlap, some of them kind of point in different directions. They're kind of a little bit contradictory to each other. But the eighth and the ninth, uh, the eighth is a sense of dimensionality. So that's also kind of a little bit implicit in this soft edgeness business. When I think, I think, my sense of Robert, um, in in that blurriness of his edges, um, first of all, I wouldn't want him to have sharp edges. I I I lose something of his beauty, of his mystery, of his essence if he's got sharp edges. Does, does you understand? Now, in the blurriness, at, the, at that, as it transitions in the verse, we could say there's a kind of dimension, there's a kind of um, dimensionality. It's like sensing into Robert, or sensing into this tree or this flower. When I sense it with soul, it's as if there are other dimensions that we sort of pick up on or intuit or, or dimly sense. Sometimes we clearly sense them. So it's like, I sense Robert and I, and I sense him as the angel there. Now, I can see Robert, and I see his stripy shirt, and I see his sitting and his form, and I know a little bit about his history in the human realm. And there's another dimension, the angelic dimension. Actually, there's multiple dimensions. 
Some of them will be clear to me, and some of them kind of recede into this blur, blurriness. Is this making sense? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Um, so. I, I just got muddled because you were talking about Robert, and for a minute I thought you meant yourself. And then oh, no, sorry, I mean this. Well, I could mean myself. <laughs> so, but thank you for saying that, Ron. I could mean myself. So I'm also a Robert. Um, but. Uh, in this case, I meant that, Robert. But but it doesn't matter because whatever whatever we sense with soul, whether it's Robert Broderick, whether it's Robert Brabea, whether it's the Rose, um, whatever we sense with soul will start to come alive with dimensionality. We will start to notice the dimensionality, the angelic dimensions of yeah. So wh- whatever it is, really, does that make sense? Um, now we could say we could say so we're still on this eight, eighth one of dimensionality, and we could kind of separate it out and say, okay, now we can separate out something called divinity, or we could just lump it together and say this dimensionality kind of shades into a sense of the divine and of sacredness. Now, divine is either a word that means absolutely nothing to people, or or it's a word that we have bad bad uh, history with, or it might be a very rich word. To me, it's actually an infinitely rich word. It, it's, we can never exhaust what the word divinity means, what it represents, what it holds. It, it is itself an infinite concept, inf- infinitely rich with possibility. Um, dimensionality shading into a sense of divinity. And sometimes that divinity is very clear. That's a very palpable sense. Sometimes it's a very, it, we're even quite clear what we mean by divinity or the concept. But some or other uh, concept or sense of divinity, clear or kind of vague or obscure, is an aspect of the imaginary. Is that okay? Yes. Um, <clears throat> One of the characteristics of divinity is, as I said, it's not, it's not, whatever we say about it, however clever we are at theology or philosophy or whatever, we're never gonna, you never, it's always gonna be bigger. There's always gonna be more. There's a kind of infinity of beyondness to, to divinity. And that ties in <coughs> to, uh, the ninth aspect that, uh, the, as I said, these are kind of implicit in each other. But with uh, with an image, or, or could, again, could be my self sense. I've become. Uh, I'm just sensing into. I'm sensing myself with soul. I've become a deity. It could be the rose. It could be another person. It could be an intrapsychic image. There's a sense of beyondness. So there's there's a kind of. Uh, we said, I, I, I perceive this. This is what I perceive, whatever it is, and maybe that has some dimensionality, but there's a sense of, there's more, there's more. There's more that I can kind of intuit, and that's attractive. There's that, that beyond has an allure, and that's partly what's related to the eros. So we get this sense of there's a beyondness to an image. It's not just a form, a flat form. It's uh, It's got this, again, dimensionality to it. 
And that beyondness is unfathomable. There's not a sense, again, that I can reach the end. So, so images, the imaginal, what we sense with soul has, has a, has a sense of unfathomability to it. But the dimensionality, the beyondness, the divinity, the unfathomability, with the sensing with soul, with the imaginal, it doesn't, it's not something that loses the appearance. I just want the unfabricated, the quieting of perception, the fading of appearances, the blurring into oneness. That's all really good and important. With imaginal perception, with sensing with soul, it's um, this sense of dimensionality, beyondness, unfathomability, divinity, is in and through as well as behind the appearances. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. No. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> in a way, you have to give some context. So it's it's good that you are. So, um, <clears throat> certain kinds of meditate meditative practice came up a little bit with Matthew um, Davies. Uh, question last night, uh, which I didn't actually pick up on last night. She said a lot of times in Buddhist teachings, a lot of what you get in Buddhist teachings, oh, I could talk a long time about this, let's see. Um, <clears throat> it's worth saying again, I've said it before, but it's worth saying again. Um, we could divide the thrust or the intention of of the range of Buddhist teachings, we could divide it into three, okay, in terms of how, what gets sort of taught and what gets emphasized. So one is, um, and this is the more traditional Theravadan way, is that there's basically, here we are in the world of complexity and appearances and all the tussle of that, and we practice and we practice seeing emptiness and we practice letting go, and we're basically letting go of appearances. And there's, what happens is there's uh, a, a quietening, a blur, a fading of the perception, a melting of the perception, more and more. So eventually, we some kind of sense of oneness uh, we, we begin to perceive, and that there's a kind of spectrum of that <coughs> fading of appearances into different kinds of oneness. You could say love or awareness or whatever it is, and eventually there's the um, you could say the um, dissolution into emptiness or dissolution into what's sometimes called the unfabricated or the unconditioned. It's just the relinquishing of all appearances and in that a kind of letting go in relationship to, to the world. Does that make sense? Very briefly. And so that in some traditions um, really gets emphasized a lot. That's the movement. It's a kind of transcending of the world of appearances in the world of complexity. I think that's very important, but I don't think it's the whole thing. Other Buddhist traditions, especially more commonly and also in different cultures, um, emphasize what we could call just um, being with things as they are, or mindfulness. So rather than trying to go beyond or through into some kind of realms of emptiness, it's rather this world, this moment, this um, sensation, and there's a kind of uh, just, just with this, just with this, as it is. Don't add anything. Don't try and get rid of it. Just meet the the um, 
the, the facts of existence as barely as possible and practice is about being with that. Does it make sense? Very common nowadays, extremely common, extremely common in certain cultures or certain streams of Buddhism. Now there's a third way which we could call um, the imaginal or engaging with um, appearances but not kind of believing so much in this there's a way that things are. So I can't be with things as they are because there is no way things as they are. We participate in the creation of things. We participate in the sensing of things. So we have then uh, a, an opening of the possibility of imaginal perception. And as I said, I can say, be with that, that Robert over there. Um, then I, the angelic perception of him or the image of him might be, um, it, it, we can say it's a fabricated perception. It's not unfabricated. It's uh, I'm allowed to play with those perceptions. And the appearances become important, not just because they're kind of flat facts. They become important because of this fertility of the imaginal and because of the divinity. So the divinity is in the appearance. It's not just beyond the appearance. It's in the appearance. And the dimensionality is in the appearance. How does that sound? Are you sure? Don't, don't just, um, yeah? So, does everyone, how did that sound? Um, so we could, I'll just say one more minute on this, because, um, one way of understanding Buddha Dharma is it's all about understanding fabrication. So fabrication means what, what is the, what is being created in perception? What is being woven in the realm of, of what we experience? How does experience get made? Uh, when I understand that more and I begin to be able to let go of the clinging that creates experience, that fabricates experience, I'm, I'm, the sense moves more and more into unfabricated. I'm clinging less, I'm letting go of identification, I'm letting go of all the grasping and pushing and pulling. And things just fade more and more and more. When I... When I realise, through the, through the, if I go deeply enough into that process, I realise that everything is fabricated. There's nothing that's not fabricated, nothing whatsoever. Not the fabricator, not the mind, not the consciousness, not time, not space, not things, not nothing. It's all fabricated. Um, and in, in going deeply enough into that, I see that um, the whole notion of fabrication too is empty because there's nothing that's fabricated, there's no time in which it's fabricated, and there's no fabricator. It's going, it's taking that process deeper and deeper and deeper. Am I, is this, it's fine, okay. So, um, it's also because I'm tired, so sorry if it's not clear. Um, when I go deep enough into it, if I go a little bit deep, then I think, okay, there's something that's fabricated, this is fabricated, that's not fabricated. So there's a kind of duality between fabricated and unfabricated. Once I start going deeper, I come eventually to a point where I say, it's all fabricated. There's not even an unfabricated, because there's no fabricated. 
There's no fabricated, really. Fabrication is, is empty. Therefore, there's no unfabricated, really. So the whole duality of fabricated and unfabricated collapses. Where does that leave me? I'm just free then to play with different ways of looking and participate in the creation slash discovery of, of being, of forms, of phenomena, including the imaginal. That understanding of emptiness at that level starts freeing things up. What that does is then legitimize what we could call skillful fabrication or soulful fabrication. Does that make sense? So it's like if you go deep enough into emptiness, it legitimizes something about about the possibility of the imaginal. If I go back to those three um, kind of ways that Dharma gets taught, you've got this um, all out for the unfabricated, for oneness, for going beyond appearances. I've got this legitimization of fabrication that we're talking about. That middle one, <clears throat> the mindfulness, when I believe in the, this is what things are, then that doesn't legitimize the imagination. So someone who's like, uh, or if I was, um, believing in, in the, the reality of bare attention and mindfulness, then imagination is exactly the wrong thing to do. It's, it's, it's exactly nonsense. It's exactly non-reality. It's exactly a waste of time. It's exactly what's going to get you into trouble. Because, because Dharma is about being with something called things as they are. Or the facticity of things, or bare attention, or whatever. Once you kind of expose the myth of that, then you realize, oh, this mindfulness business, it's really good as, as a kind of stream. We don't want to lose it. But if I, if I say that's the only thing, <coughs> then it, it leaves me a bit straightjacketed. Um, and, and, and this whole business would be just utter delusion. We're spending a week in complete and utter delusion. Um, delusion's a Buddhist word though, avidya. It's a translation of avidya. Delusion, you could say, means, at a deep level, this non-realization that everything is empty. So to the degree that I'm deluded is the degree that I believe in mindfulness. As more than just a tool. Okay, I really don't, mindfulness, you can't do anything without mindfulness. It's really important, so don't... Don't, it's on tape now. <laughs> I, I really believe in it, and it's really important to practice. It's just what, how it gets framed and believed in and rigidified. It's like, oh, this has become an ultimate truth. Even if people are not using that language, it's just, and again, you've got a wall and, and an absence of questioning. It's like, so, so, does that make sense? So, uh, okay, and then I'll stop. <laughs> and let's just see. All right. So, like I said, we're doing really a bus tour. I mean, I talked a lot longer than I intended to, but um, it, this is just a quick bus tour through these aspects to, to kind of prick up your ears and prick up your senses. It's like, oh, I can start noting. Oh, oh, yeah, there is this sense of dimensionality. Maybe that word doesn't quite work. Or maybe the word divinity, it's like, oh, I, I'm, I, I had thought it meant this, or I, 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 you know, made it just mean this, or whatever. And you start to, so you have to feel your way into these. You have to sense your way into these nodes. Let them come, discover them for yourself. Do, do you understand?
Um, let's have some coffee. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.